So I'm excited to talk about this. We've got a couple more minutes with the great Bob Calhoun, who I call Nor Calhoun because of his incredible knowledge of all sorts of weird events that happened in Northern California. And this one is no exception. We're talking about the kidnapping of Brooke Hart, Brookie Hart. Uh, it's difficult to say how. And that's a man, by the way. Normally, Brooke is a, a woman's name. But this is a man who was the heir to the Hart's department store. And he was part of what you claim to be the stupidest crime. I don't know if it's just you, but you've I definitely read in your book, The Stupidest Crime in California History His Kidnapping Was. So tell me a little bit about this story. Okay. Uh, I think the Chronicle, the San Francisco Chronicle called it the dumbest crime or stupidest crime in, in California history. And the I- irony is uh, Jack Holmes and Harold Thurman. Jack Holmes like was like – It's John Holmes, isn't it? John or Jack. Um, he went by Jack. But yeah, John Holmes. Okay, okay. I, I tend to call him Jack because that that's a name he's called to not have people think that the 70s porn star traveled back in time <laughs> okay. in the 30s. To all right, this all right, right. But yeah, the irony is he's he's um, he was really uh, a student or or thought of himself as a student of the Lindbergh kidnapping, and he wanted to plan the perfect crime, and instead he planned one of the most idiotic crimes. Um, that's probably not surprising. But okay, let's let's talk about him and Harold Thurmond. Uh, Holmes was like a salesman who worked for like gas stations or oil companies in the Bay area. He sold like, you know, oil cans to gas stations. That was his job. He did fairly well. It's the depression, but he had a job and he was doing okay, but it was never quite enough. He was trying to seduce. He was married, but he was trying to seduce his high school sweetheart who was married, or maybe he wasn't married and she was. Sorry. It's uh but anyway, he's trying to seduce his high school sweetheart and he feels that if he could get his hands on like 40 or 50k that that would get be enough for her to leave her husband and run off with him. And he falls in with Harold Thurmond who was a guy who he ran like he worked at his father's gas station in San Jose and he, you know, was He was a little bit slow, like he had a head injury as a child and he never quite recovered from it. So he was very, very suggestible and very easily led. And so he falls in with Holmes, who's this kind of swinging guy. And so Holmes decides to start him and Thurman to start like robbing Holmes bosses. Like they know where the payroll is going from these, these local oil companies and distributors. And so they start boosting those and they steal the cash. You know, they get 1200 bucks here, 2000 there, which is like a fortune back then. That's like a $30,000 robbery today or $50,000 robbery, but it's never quite enough. And so he gets this idea to like kidnap Brooke Hart. You know, it's almost kind of like the later SLA kidnapping of Patty Hearst, where there's a list of kind of prominent people in town and who, who would be, you know, who would, who would get the most headlines or who would get the most money. They, this was a crime for money. And, uh, so Brooke Hart is the heir to, um, the heart department store in downtown San Jose, which is a much bigger deal at this time. You know, that is where everybody in San Jose, San Jose is like, now it's Silicon Valley and, you know, Adobe is there and things. But back then it was like, there's this downtown that's kind of a modern thirties downtown, but it's surrounded by 
quicksilver mines and orchards. Like even when I was a kid in the seventies, you only started to have all that suburbanization was like, was really ramping up, but you, you would see like apple and orange and cherry orchards there back then. It was a very agricultural and mining kind of place. And, uh, so Brookhart is like, he's this beloved heir. He's this blonde kid. He went to Santa Clara university. He was like a star in whatever he was a star in. So they decide that they're going to kidnap him and ransom him. And what they do is they, they snatch him coming out of the store. Um, one evening, like his day is done and he's supposed to meet his family and they, they, they boost him out of there and then they take him to the San Mateo bridge, which is kind of halfway between San Francisco and San Jose. And it's the first bridge, uh, the golden gate bridge and the Bay bridge don't exist yet. So this is the only bridge across the San Francisco Bay and they take him there and they beat him and they drown him. They dump him in the Bay and he dies. Well, now, now, so now hold on. What's one sec? One thing that's important here is they hit him in the head with a concrete block. They throw him overboard, but he doesn't die. He survives, calls for help, but wasn't rescued because the people who heard him, they couldn't get to him. And the cops did not act on that information. So he actually survives the fall, which I thought was a crazy part of the story. Yeah, he survives. And they, they, these two guys, they're just like, people collecting wood at the side of the bay in Alameda on the kind of Oakland side of the bay. And they try to save him, but they can't find him. They could hear the cries for help and he eventually dies. He, and they report it to the police in Hayward, which is like right where I live now. And they just kind of sit on the information. They don't know what to do with it. They don't really investigate it. They, they just leave it there. Um, but Holmes and Thurmond, like, they they dispose of every piece of evidence that they'd ever kidnapped Hart. Now, I could ask a question here. Why did they kill him immediately if they were looking for a ransom? Be- oh, okay. Yeah, there's there, that's part of the dumbest crime of all time thing. They didn't – they kidnap him and they don't have like a stash house for him. Like they tried to buy a boat, but the boat was too expensive. You know, they were going to, you know, have him at a marina somewhere and hold him there. They didn't find an abandoned shack or they didn't rent a shack somewhere to hold him. They had nowhere to hold him. They lived in apartments in downtown San Jose. So they couldn't hold him there. And they didn't, they just didn't have a place to hold him. So they don't know what to, they get him and they, he's like the hot potato. They don't know what to do with it. So they kill him and dump him. And then they panic. And like, if they had any artifact of his, they don't take his wallet or his, you know, his monogrammed handkerchief or whatever people had back then right? <laughs> in 1933. Yeah. They dump all that. They dump everything they had that was evidence that they ever had him. And then they try to ransom him. They try to, they, they send the ransom letters to his dad and they have all, it's like all this kind of pulp novel pulp story cloak and dagger stuff that they want the dad to drive to, I think Los Angeles. And they didn't know that the dad didn't know how to drive and he has to drive alone and he can't, but the notes were so stupid and so over the top that even the FBI, who's just after the Lindbergh kidnapping, the FBI is, is on kidnappings, right. kidnappings 
like the gangster types, like the kind of depression era gangster types, like pretty boy Floyd and stuff would, would kidnap these rich kids and ransom them off. Only they actually knew how to do this. And these guys didn't. And, uh, you know, it was just, it was, wasn't a violent crime. They were just trying to get money. And, uh, well, it was a violent crime. They kidnapped somebody, but they weren't they weren't really into murdering the merchandise. Right. You know, they wanted to get the merchandise back, usually. Um, so there was a wave of Depression era kidnappings. So the FBI is kind of formed to deal with that in the aftermath of the Lindbergh kid- kidnapping. Charles Lindbergh flew across the Atlantic. He was a very famous, beloved figure in the 30s in the United States until and he's kind of looked askance at now because he was like way into Hitler. Because of that, the FBI, but the FBI looks at Holmes and Thurman's letters and they're like, these are too stupid. This is obviously just a copycat or somebody, some mentally deranged person trying to horn in on this crime. So, so they ignored it. And then finally they figured out like, no, these are the guys or we think they're the guys. And this goes back and forth a little bit. You know, these, they called, you know, and they kept calling. They started phone calls because they weren't getting anywhere with the letters. And the FBI puts a trace on the call. And then they trace the call to a payphone in a downtown San Jose parking garage that's like a block or across the street from the San Jose Police Department. So they're able to bust Thurmond. As he's, uh, you know, trying to get the $50,000 ransom money, um, you know, they, they bust him either with the phone in his hand or he's just, just hung up the phone. Like it's him and he confesses, they get Jack Holmes and they get, they get, they get confessions from both of them, um, that are a little varied the way people's memories are. Um, but everybody in San Jose wants to kill these guys. It's like full on 1851 San Francisco vigilance, vigilante movement all over again. And, um, so they're awaiting their trial and the, you know, things are, you know, they don't have the body yet, but at the point, at a point, some duck hunters on the Bay find Brooke Hart's Brookie Hart's body. And then San Jose just flips out, like basically all of San Jose, you know, and these are not just like kind of rednecks or whatever. They're, they, these are prominent people in the Masonic, you know, club and the, the Kiwanis club and the Chamber of Commerce. All these people descend on the downtown San Jose jail, which has been around since the gold rush or had been around. It's from 1861 are the 1860s and that's when it was built. It's this old fortress, this old kind of military fortress. And they, they, they storm the jail and they, they take a uh, heart and home or not heart, uh, Holmes and Thurmond out into the park across the street and they hang them from trees and they kill them. And well, one of the, one of the things you mentioned, I mean, it, you go through it into great detail in the book. I mean, it, it's a pretty brutal lynching. And, you know, one of them, I think it's, um, Thurman, who the, one of the lynchers actually pulls down his pants and tries to set his pubic hair on fire, which is just insane. Um, and, and one of the things that I noticed is that the, the rioters, I mean, the, the, the lynchers were, pardoned i believe and the reason was given for lack of lethal force or something like they were they were fine citizens i think they were called which is i mean it, it's so crazy to think that that happened but that is not this is not unusual in history but i, I thought it was you know remarkable in this particular instance yeah and um 
the the rioters, the lynchers actually stripped both guys naked. They stripped them both naked and like women there. There were women there, you know, and it's still kind of Victorian mores. So these women, you know, there's articles in the Chronicle um, at the time written by Carolyn Ospacher, who I'm not sure I'm pronouncing her name right. She She's like somebody who ends up covering a lot of these cases. And I, I ended up becoming acquainted with Chronicle and Examiner and Oakland Tribune people who covered crime over the decades. Um, she writes about the women and their bloodlust. And the women, like, you know, they're women and men and young boys and teenage boys are like putting cigarettes out on these guys' flesh as they drag them through the park. Um, and, and like women try to set one of like Holmes or Thurman's pubic hairs on fire. If you look for Holmes and Thurman or 1933 San Jose lynching or hanging, you will see pictures of these guys totally naked hanging from trees. So they're just beating the crap out of these guys and then they hang them and, uh, they hang Thurman pretty quickly. He's the first to go. The kind of lackey, the simple minded lackey. Holmes is like a really strong guy and they have, even with all, like there's thousands of people there in this park and they have trouble with him. He's like fighting them back and they try to hang him. They, they find a tree finally that can hold him up because he's about 190 pounds, which is like a big guy back then. Um, heavyweight boxers were 180, 190 pounds back then. And, uh, they, he, he's actually able, they string him up on a tree. They find a branch strong enough to hold him and they string him up on a tree and he's able to kind of hand over hand behind him, pull himself out of the noose. And there's a bit of, um, history for old TV buffs. One of the people try that was, that was pulling the rope for these guys on these guys is Jackie Coogan, who was a childhood actor who's in the tramp with, uh, Charlie Chaplin because the tramp. No, I think it was called the kid. Wasn't it the movie? The kid. Okay. Yeah. He's in the kid and maybe it's the first movie with the little tramp character or one of the early movies with that Charlie Chaplin character. Uh, maybe the first feature film. It's a longer film. Like there's shorts with him, but, uh, he's in the kid. Sorry about that. And, um, as a child, he's, he's like the kid in the kid. He's the title character. And he was one of Brooke Hart's or Brookie Hart's, uh, um, frat brothers at Santa Clara university. So as a, as a young man, 20 years old or whatever, he's there in the lynch mob. And he's one of the guys, the frat brothers are the guys pulling the, these guys up. They're pulling, they're hoisting the rope. Well, now he also played uncle Fester. I mean, people are going to know him as uncle Fester from the Adams family. I mean that. Yeah. 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 Later on uncle Fester, um, the skinhead on the Adams family lynched a guy and, but the guys were white. That's a thing I do want to make clear is that, he that the both of these men, both of the murderers were white, but it's a vigilante killing. I don't know that it's fair to call Uncle Fester a skinhead. I mean, he was bald for sure. Well, I mean, I don't know that he was a Nazi in, in, in Adam's family, but he's, well, he's no, really he was bald. But, <laughs> but, sure. uh, it's a joke. It's the bald guy who looks like a I mean, he is pulling a guy up. I mean, he is hanging a guy when he was younger. So, I mean, you know, yeah, <laughs> might but, be true. Um, the governor. governor Sonny Jim Rolfe in California uh, said, I don't have the exact quote with me, but he said even before like uh, the sheriff in, in San Jose is asking for national guard help. 
And I have the quote right here. Sonny Jim Rolfe, the governor, former mayor of San Francisco. I am not going going to call out the guard to protect the kidnappers who willfully killed a fine boy. Let the law take its course. So he's he's okay with it. And even after the lynching and, you know, public opinions kind of turning a bit, he's like, no, they uh, they got what they deserve. That was, to, you know, let people know they can't get away with this. Now, the weird thing is, is that it it didn't work that way, is that kidnappings actually started to go up in California nationally after this. It almost became a, a an advertisement for it and also a what not to do right. <laughs> primer on how to do right. kidnappings. Like all these articles saying what these guys did wrong tells future kidnappers, you know, how to do it. Um, but yeah, the NAACP came out against him because – even though these two, Holmes and Thurman were both both Caucasian, they knew that more black people were going to be lynched because that was that was a very common occurrence. And then a week after this, a black man accused of raping a white woman in I think Missouri, the um, people stormed the the jail there the same way they did in San Jose and lynched that guy um, before he could have a trial or or anything. And so, yeah, that was that that was there was the worry that the governor of California being OK with lynching was sending out the wrong message. Um, it's often called the San Jose lynching is often called the last lynching in California. There was another one up north later. Why am I thinking Santa Rosa? I write about it in the book. I didn't write about it for the weekly like as a there was another lynching like the very next year in Northern California. And that is technically the last one. There were those weird crimes. Where were, were they like Palmdale where a, where a black man was found hanging that was ruled a suicide, but it's suspicious just like a couple of years ago. So I'm not sure you could call either, either the Santa Rosa, I think it was lynching or the San Jose lynching, the last lynching, you know, there's some question about that from kind of recent, maybe hate crimes in California, but, from like 2017, 2018. Um, but yeah, they were, this was, is all last lynching, but it really isn't, but it's close. Well, I mean, and it's, it's a, it's a really stark reminder because we think, I mean, I do this, this was in the thirties, you know, as you mentioned, it's during the great depression. And when you see these types of things, you know, we, we think we'd like to think today that we're above all this stuff, but I, I never get political on the show and I'm not going to, but I do find it striking that even as you read the quote from the governor at the time, just how close this is to what happened at the Capitol. And there was a, you know, there was a gallows that were, was erected, you know, this is, you know, just this year. Early this year. And it tells you that this type of behavior is always right on the edge of people's minds. It is not difficult to get a group of people. I mean, look, you know, as I mentioned the Cecil Hotel, I mentioned that, um, I mentioned that documentary, you know, in our, in our main episode. And one of the things that's a theme of that episode is how these people online are, they're no different than vigilantes. There's one guy who becomes a suspect in this murder and they trash this guy's life. He, he isn't a murderer. He's, he wasn't even in LA at the time of the murder, but they trash his life in the same way. I mean, it's different because these two were, were, 
obviously guilty. But this mob mentality, this vigilante justice, it doesn't, it doesn't begin and end at lynchings. I mean, those are the most direct and murderous of intent, but it happens every day online. Um, and my point is that people are, are, it's very easy to drive and push people to this level of mentality, this level of groupthink, and it's extremely dangerous. And it's, you know, it's, it's right on the edge of our humanity. That, that's what I'm trying to say here, Bob. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, yeah. And one one thing to add to the San Jose case is there is evidence that Holmes and Thurman didn't act alone, that they might have had a third or fourth accomplice, like people who placed them around the crime at the time saw them with other people, including a woman who saw them transfer heart from one car to another. And she says there was a third guy there. And so because of the lynching, we never know. Well, if there's some other guilty person, um, they they got free, just as free as everybody who did the lynching. Like one guy was was indicted for it and he was able to get off. You know, the kid who bought the rope, he was a high school kid who bought some of the ropes and he he ends up getting off in the case. You know, no jury would convict him. Everybody's all pro lynching and he ends up uh, becoming a big real estate agent or something in the South Bay in the San Jose area. But the thing I try to do in the book in Murders That Made Us is it begins with the vigilantes in the 1850s in San Francisco. The formation of San Francisco itself is formed by lynch mobs. And then you have the Burkhart case down south in San Jose in the 30s. And then in the 70s, after the Dan White verdict, it like history repeats itself, almost like this is just something in the Bay Area DNA. But what's strange about that is it's the gay community, the gay and lesbian community that show up to city hall um, after Dan White is is it's a, they want a murder conviction for him for killing Harvey Milk and Mayor Moscone, um, and they give him like a manslaughter conviction and he's only going to serve seven years for assassinating these two civic leaders and gay rights leader, one of them a gay rights leader, both of them based pro gay. And uh, they they tear apart the facade of uh, City Hall and they light like 20 or 15 or 20 cop cars on fire in this big riot outside of City Hall. So, yeah, the events in January in Washington, you're right. It is just always simmering under the surface for, you know, and it, it can catch it can catch any kind of population. You know, it, it's a very right wing movement that led to uh, January. But in San Francisco in 1979, it is a very, very, it's the opposite that, that this kind of riotous fever, maybe it's somewhat justified for, for them at that time. But, you know, it's a very violent and scary thing that, that happened at city hall in San Francisco in 79. And now I wonder like, Oh, this happens every 60 years, 50 years. Like what the hell's going to happen in San Francisco to, or in the Bay area to do this again, <laughs> you know, to have right. this kind of kind of mob uprising. I don't know. It's like, um, you know, if it's a pattern that keeps repeating itself, we will see it in our lifetimes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is unique. I mean, it is the one thing that unites us is our ability to, marginalize people and and uh and act as vigilantes against them when when we feel 
that uh, well, no matter what group you are, if you feel you've been wronged and you have the the numbers, you will take advantage of that. I mean, it is it is unique that it, that is the thing that unites us. Uh, but not to end on such a sour note, I just thought this was such a great story, uh, very interesting, and um, you know tells a lot about human nature. So thanks for sticking around, Bob. Oh yeah, thanks for thanks for that. Yeah, it's a, definitely an interesting story, and it's just one of. One of uh, several or hundreds even or one of a hundred in the murders that made us and it tells the history of the San Francisco Bay Area and the surrounding communities through uh, crimes both forgotten and notorious.